And uh, for the rest of us this morning, um, we are beginning a new series. So we just wrapped up uh, the series through the book of Nehemiah, and we talked about rebuilding the wall, and we learned some principles to uh, take home with us as we think about trying to do something new, uh, to do a great work for the Lord. And so uh, next, what I thought would be uh, beneficial for us is to do a series called The Church. And so what we're going to do over the next several weeks is I'm just going to be looking at some principles concerning the the church. So, you know, we've been having our, our vision meetings and been having some really good uh, conversations and discussions that are that um, really needed to be had. And um, we're going to have another meeting this uh, Sunday afternoon as well. And um, but I thought what we would do in this series is. Uh, just kind of walk through some important issues about what is the church? Um, uh, how does the church work? What does the church do? How should the church function? And, and, um, and lay out maybe some of the discussions that we've been having if, um, if you haven't been there on Sunday afternoons. And so hopefully this can help, um, just bring us a, a sense together of what it means to function biblically as a New Testament church. And so, we're, so that's what we're going to do this Morning, and so we're going to do this in, in uh, by answering different questions throughout this series. And so the first sermon in this series, and question number one, is going to be about purpose. Purpose. Why is there a church? Why is there a church? So that's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to begin this morning in Genesis chapter one. And so I'm going to take a guess that's going to be on page one of your of your Bibles there. Uh, so page one, Genesis chapter one. Um, we're going to talk about purpose. Why is there a church? Because, right, if we're going to be a church, we got to know why we exist and what God has purposed for the church and where we fit into the big picture story of what God is doing in the world. And I think the more we grasp this, the more, the more we feel the significance of what it means to belong to Christ and to belong to God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, from Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin... In verses 26 through 28, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The word of God you may be seated. Okay, so we're going to see... Three kind of purposes for the church this morning. Number one, we're going to see that it is to fulfill the purpose for which man was made. To fulfill the purpose for which man was made. Number two purpose of the church is to be God's chosen people and children. To be God's chosen people and children, as we just sang about. And then number three purpose of the church is to bring him glory. To bring him glory. But first, number one, we're going to talk about the purpose of the church, to fulfill the purpose for which man was made. To fulfill the purpose for which man was made. So, 
The, bo- the book of Genesis, if you haven't figured it out yet, is extremely important for Christianity. And, and even just the first few chapters are extremely important for us today because they delineate the purpose for which God made humanity, right? So a lot of conversations and a lot of discussions and a lot of disagreements today revolve around, right, revolve around what does it mean to be human and who can define that and what does that mean, okay? And the Bible, of course, has answers to that questions, to those questions, and I think we have to say that if God made humanity, then God gets to decide what it means to be human. And that means that we have to look to him to determine why we're here and what we should and shouldn't do and what it means to be his people. And so you can't really determine the purpose of anything unless you go back to the beginning, to God's original intention and design. And so I want to suggest this morning that if we ask the question, why is there a church? Why is there a church? I want to suggest to you that this really isn't that different than asking the question, why is there humanity? Why is there humanity? And I'm going to, I'm going to draw that connection out for you, hopefully, uh, here in just a few minutes. So if we look at Genesis 1, what does it say about humanity? It says that we were made in God's image. We were made in God's image. So now, if you've read the Old Testament, you recognize and you realize, right, that... Um, the, an image in, in the, in the Old Testament, right? An image is a pretty, pretty specific term, right? Because God forbade the creating of images of gods. He, and, and, and in fact, God forbade the creation of images of himself, right? If you go back to, uh, if you go back, uh, to Israel at Mount Sinai when they made the golden calf, they actually weren't, they actually were trying to make a representation of God, of God, the God who delivered them out of slavery. Okay? Which is interesting. But, so, it's not like they were trying to worship a false God. They were trying to worship a true God in the wrong way. Okay? So, that's what, so image in the Old Testament bears that idea. So, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that in the first chapters of the Bible, it says, you know, I mean, like, to this day in other parts of the world, Right? People make images and worship them. Okay? It happens all over the world. But in the, in the Old Testament, it says that God made an image of himself. You see that? God forbade man to make images of himself. Why? Well, at least, I think at least part of the reason is because God had already made an image of himself. God is so great that he cannot be properly imaged in anything that a human being could create because the human beings themselves are image bearers of God. So what does that mean? It means that we exist to represent God, to display God, to manifest the beauty and glory and goodness and wisdom and and righteousness and, and grace of God to the world, right? When you look at another human being and you see a creative person, a person with capacity to create and build and do good. When you, when you see wisdom and beauty and virtue and goodness in another human being, what are you seeing? You're seeing God on display, right? You're seeing a reflection of the one in whose image that person was made, okay? So that's an aspect of the image of God. 
Another aspect of the image of God is that what did image do? Well, images represented deity, right? And so they would put these images up in their, their temples or whatever to represent the divine. And essentially they would be saying, right, that, that, uh, that the, the rain, where, where an idol was, right, the, they were saying that the, the idol that, that God represented there has authority there, right? When, when Nebuchadnezzar created a statue of himself and had everybody bow down to worship it, he was, he wanted people to see the statue and think Nebuchadnezzar reigns here, right? So what did God do when he created images of himself? Well, he was saying that where, so that the rest of creation, wherever they saw a human being, they would look at the way that human being rules and creates and develops and lives and should be able to say, God reigns here because that's his image. That's what we were made to do, which, which is why when you, when you look at creation, it's, it's remarkable the charge that he gives humanity. Have dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven. What does what does he get? What does what do humans get to do? They get to rule the world for God. Okay, but what happened? What happened? Man fell woefully short of the purpose for which we were given because because the world wasn't enough. God made us to be kings, and that wasn't enough. We wanted to be the king of kings. That's sin. Humanity fell, and great was the fall of it. And the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is the story of God working to restore his image bearers to who they were made to be. That's one way to look at the the story of the entire Bible. And so if we, so if we fast forward through this all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to the climactic solution where God is finally and fully fixing the problem that man brought into the world, what happens? Well, he fixes the problem that man brought into the world through a man. Right? The promise in Genesis 3.15, right? I will put enmity between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. In other words, God was saying that he was going to send a man to fix the problem that man made. But of course, this was no ordinary man. It was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he came at the fullness of time. And what did he do when, when God sent the solution to man's problem, sin, when sin is what? Sin is what keeps us from being who we were made to be. The image bearers, the perfect image bearers of God. When God sends the solution for sin to restore humanity back to the way that they're supposed to be, what ends up happening? Well, he lives a perfect life. He dies a a substitutionary death for the sins not his own, for other people's sins. He rises physically, bodily from the grave so that all who believe in him are forgiven of their sin. Their sin is, their penalty is paid by Jesus Christ. They're forgiven of their sins. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then that same Jesus, he ascended into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, he poured out his Holy Spirit upon his apostles who had preached the gospel. And, and ultimately, what is the result of all of that? It's a little group of people called the church. The church. 
Well, what does that mean then? Well, if sin is the humanity's problem and the solution to that problem comes through Jesus and the result of that solution is the church, what does that say about the church? It says that the church, the church is the solution. The church is the problem being fixed. The church is the place, is the community of God's people restored back to who they were made to be. We, the church, I'm trying to give you a high view of the church. The church is restored humanity. We are God taking, we are God. This is, it is God taking back from among rebels a people for himself who will renounce their rebellion and he, and be restored back to priests and kings under the gracious rule of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The church is plan A for the world. There is no plan B. Right? There's lots of needs in the world. There's lots of important things that can be done in the world. Politics is important. You know, we have to live in a messy world and, po- and God has ordained a place for politics. Read Romans chapter 13. But politics isn't going to save the world. You can politic all you want. That what's going to save the world is the presence of Christ in the world through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is plan A. There is no plan B. Daniel saw a vision of the great of this statue with gold, silver, iron, and it represented all the different greatest, greatest empires on planet Earth. And then there was a stone cut which struck the statue, literally turned it into dust and grew into a mountain that filled the world. That stone is the kingdom of God. It is the only politic that will remain forever. The church is plan A for the world. There is no plan B. The church is comprised of those who what? Who have already experienced in part the restoring and renewing work of God, right? That's what Paul said. He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, if you have exercise genuine repentance of sin and faith in Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and that you have been born again and you have become a new creature. Might not always feel that way sometimes, but that is in fact, the Bible says, what has happened to you. So you are, the church is what? It is the first fruits of the new creation. It's not fully here, it's not finally here, but it's coming and you're the beginning. The change in your life that is wrought by the Holy Spirit, Paul says again, is a down payment of the, of, of the inheritance that's still to come. You have the first fruits, the first initial powers, the first initial change of the Spirit within you that, that Jesus Christ will bring to completion at His return. We are the restored humanity. Think about it, right? Adam and Eve were made to do what? They were made to, they literally walked and talked with God in a garden. They enjoyed a real personal relationship with the God of the universe. These are our first parents. That's what they were made for. They were made to walk with him, to talk with him, to learn from him, to reign for him. 
And that is what we do in the church. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3 here, verse 7 through 11. This is what Paul says about the church. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's kind of dense. But let's go back and look. He says in verse 9 there that Paul's ministry, so this is Paul's conception of his own ministry. He says that he was called to be an apostle to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Okay? So God had a plan, a mysterious plan, now revealed through Jesus Christ, where he finally shows how he's going to fix the problem that sin brought into the world, and the result of that solution is the church. That in the church, the mystery that has been hidden for ages in God has now been revealed. The manifold wisdom of God through the church might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, he's saying, he's saying demons and angels... Look at the church and their mind is blown because of what God has done. The eternal purpose, verse 11 there, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does it mean? It means the church is God's means to restore all people, not just Jews or Gentiles, but all people together into one restored humanity to display to the world angels and demons his infinite wisdom. That, that, that is, that's what it means to be part of the church, right? The Bible refers to, to Jesus in, in Romans chapter 5. He refers to Jesus as the second Adam, okay? Everybody is part of the first Adam. But the first Adam is broken, But if you become in Christ, you become one with the second Adam. You become part of a new humanity, a new creation. People who are freed from sin to be who we were made to be, the image bearers of God. No, we don't do it perfectly yet, but we're getting there. As I always say, we're not... We're not who we one day will be, but I'm not who I used to be. The beginning, the first fruits of a new creation. So that is the church, number one, to fulfill the purpose for which man was made. Number two, number two purpose for the church is to be God's chosen people and children, to be God's chosen people and children, we see this in Exodus 6, 6 through 8. I'll read it here to you. It says, it says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. 
I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So. We see here, I believe that the church exists to be God's chosen people and God's children. So to grasp this, you got to have some sense of the storyline of Scripture and how it all fits together. Okay? When you read through the, the book of Genesis, right, and you see humanity's problem, and you see that God makes that promise there of a, of a, of a, a son of Eve who will one day do battle with the serpent and undo all that he brought into the world... If you understand all that, then you, you're following the rest of Scripture and you're basically asking the question, well, where, where is he? Where is the promised one? And so then, as, you know, as I've said in other places, right, that's where all the genealogies in the Bible start making sense because it's tracing a bloodline. There's a bloodline of the promise. There's, there's a promise coming and there's gotta be, there's gotta be a line that ultimately is gonna bring forth that promise. Which is why G, which is why the Gospels uh, which is why two, two of the Gospels trace Jesus' genealogy because they want you to see that Jesus Jesus wasn't Jesus was not God saying, "Uh oh, they messed up. What am I going to do now?" Jesus was the plan to be brought forth at the right time, born of a woman, born of a virgin. God become flesh and dwelt among us. It's unbelievable. Okay, but so. But when you read in Genesis, you're like, well, where is this going? And then all of a sudden, this guy named Abraham shows up. And then it becomes clear that the promise is ultimately going to be fulfilled through Abraham. And that promise to Abraham uh, gets fleshed out by him becoming a great nation called Israel. And Israel, I would argue, in the Old Testament becomes a type, a picture, a pointer towards the church. Now, now, now follow me. He makes a promise to Abraham. He promises them offspring and blessing. They go down into slavery in Egypt, but God keeps his promise in Egypt and they multiply greatly. Okay. Now they're, now they become enslaved. All right. And then what does God do? Well, he raises up a deliverer to lead them out of slavery. And in the Exodus six passage that we looked at, that is what? That's God talking to Moses saying, I'm going to use you to lead the people out of slavery. And here's part of the reason I'm going to do it because uh, because he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So when you look at the Old Testament, OK, you have Israel and they're delivered out of slavery from Egypt. OK. And you're like, OK, this is great. This is awesome. This is this is going to work. Until they get to the wilderness. And then they complain about magical food, okay? And, and they complain about water, even though God just literally turned the whole river to blood, all right? And they, and then, you know, they, they make a golden calf, literally, when God just told them not to, okay? And they, and they rebel at the edge of the wilderness, and then they eventually go in. And then when they do go into the land, and God does give them the land anyway, they do whatever is right in their own eyes. And then after that, they want to be just like everybody else, so then they want a king. 
And then the kingdom is divided. And then they start, then they commit idolatry doing the same things that the people who God kicked out of the land ahead of him were doing. And then God sent in the prophets. And then they didn't listen to the prophets. And then you start wondering by the time, if you can make it all the way to the Old Testament, you start wondering, man, this really ain't working out. This whole God's people thing ain't really working out the way it's supposed to work. Doesn't seem like it. So what's, what's the problem? Well, something, there's, the, there's still a fundamental problem that hadn't been solved yet. Right? So then what ha- so, so again, I, I'm saying here that the, the point of Israel is to say that to be God's people, you have to be, you have to be something that Israel is even, that even Israel wasn't. You have to have, you have to have not just God's laws outside of you, you have to have God's word Written on your heart. So at the right time, through Israel, as God promised, a God-man was born as a Jew. And through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he laid the foundation of the church. He... He fulfilled the old covenant so that he could bring in a new covenant where the people of God are people, are God's people, not by circumcision, but by faith in Christ. Because when you believe in Christ, the circumcision of the body doesn't change you, but a circumcision of the heart changes you. So when God comes into your heart by the Holy Spirit and begins cutting away the worldliness and the unbelief and the, and the ungodliness in your heart, and he actually enters into you and changes you from the inside out, you can finally do what Israel couldn't. And that is love and obey God from the heart. And so this is what Christ has done. So that now through the church, through the proclamation of the gospel, wherever the gospel is preached in the world today, God through his Holy Spirit takes that gospel message and makes it the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. And through the Spirit, the message, it opens eyes, it unstops ears, it brings spiritual life in the place of spiritual death. And people, by the Word and by the Spirit, Jew, Gentile, whoever, it doesn't matter. When the Word of God comes to you in power and the Spirit applies it to your hearts and enables you to see the truth of the gospel, at that moment, you are what Jesus Christ said needed to happen to Nicodemus. You are born again. The Spirit of God comes upon you and you are born again. Now, what does that mean? Well, who are born? Well, babies are born. Children are born. Why do you got to be reborn? You got to be reborn because you're part of one family, but God needs you. God wants you in another family. So you got to be reborn. A child of God. A child of God. God. It's unbelievable. A child of God. By grace, by the word, by the gospel, by the spirit, people are reborn out of the family of Adam into the family of Christ. Out of the family of Satan into the family of God. So through Jesus Christ... Through the gospel, a people, a community is being reborn out of the nations into one family of God so that God can do what? So that he can finally fulfill the purpose 
for which we were made. So that he could finally fulfill in the church what Israel was supposed to be. Were that a people who would be his people and he would, and they would, and, and he would be their God. And that's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. Talking to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This this language is used of Israel in the Old Testament. But Peter says it's for you, the church. You are God's people. You are a chosen race. You are royal priesthood. You are those who've been called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now think about that. We, I just think we always have to keep in mind, today's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Of course, depending on where you are in the world, different times and all that. Literally, over a billion Christians will gather somewhere on this planet today and worship Jesus as the resurrected Lord. People who look different from us, people who speak a different language from us, people who culturally are different from us, people who, humanly speaking, we have absolutely nothing in common. But in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. We are God's people. We are the people who have, we are the people of God who have received the mercy of God. God's children reborn by the Spirit. God's chosen people. So why is, why is there a church? To fulfill the purpose for which man was made, number one. Number two, to be God's chosen people and children. Finally, number three, to bring him glory. We're going to see this from Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 through 17. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. It says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from wherever they come? I said to them, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him night, a day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them 
with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's going to get better. You hear me? What do we see in Revelation 7? We see God finally getting what he deserves. We see God finally affecting what he planned for humanity all along. We see a multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, tongue, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is the destiny of the church. This is where we're headed. This is where we're headed, right? It's the kingdom that strikes the foot, right? The the last, uh, most commentators believe in Daniel, that statue, the last statue represented Rome. What happened in the days of Rome? Jesus was born. That's what happened. The kingdom struck the foot. The kingdom of God struck the foot and grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. What has happened since Jesus has ascended into heaven? Well, here's what happened. The gospel was preached by the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and thousands of people got saved in Jerusalem. And then the gospel began to spread throughout Judea and then Samaria. And then they started spreading to Asia Minor. And then God saved the Apostle Paul. And then Paul traveled all throughout the entire Mediterranean region, the whole, the whole empire of Rome just about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And wherever he went, not everybody believed, but some did. And the gospel got proclaimed throughout the world. And then tradition says that the gospel was taken by other apostles to Asia, to India, south into Africa, to Ethiopia. It traveled along trade routes. It overcame nations. It changed empires. Western civilization is what it is because of Christianity. We stand here now, 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we can, in fact, right now say that in just about every nation on earth, there is someone who blesses Jesus Christ as Lord. Why? How? Because the kingdom must grow till it fills the whole earth. Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So until every, until every nation has had a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus ain't coming back. When every nation has got a witness and testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus is going to come back to take the kingdom that belongs to him. And all the people who thought they were so great and so powerful because they had president in front of their name and prime minister in front of their name or their name was Putin or whatever their name is, okay? They think they're so great. But but a guy is going to literally descend from heaven with a robe on. 
and knees will break because they can't help but bow to him. There is one kingdom that will remain. There is one kingdom that will stand. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus is worthy of the adoration and praise of all nations. And he will get it. We will stand on that day shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters from China, from Russia, from Kenya, from the Congo, from Thailand, from Burma to Brazil to Belgium. Every skin color, every language, every culture. A multitude so great. And you'll say, what in the world can all these people who are so different be gathered together, standing side by side? What could unite a a people so diverse as this? And then you look up and there's Jesus. And they all sing the same song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And what will those people, who are those people? Who are those people around the throne? They're sons of Adam. They're sons of the second Adam. They're sons and daughters of the king. They are those who have been, by the mercy of God, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church exists because God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are worthy of all glory. Because God is so great that the greatest thing he could do is share himself with his people. To create a people in his own image so that others might, so that the rest of the cosmos might see and savor the wonder, beauty, glory, and holiness of a great and gracious God. To show that despite all the hate and differences we see in the world, God, through Jesus Christ, can in fact create a people who are centered, who are unified, not about shallow, weak, temporal basis of identity, but centered about an eternal, all-glorious, all-righteous being. And when that day happens, Paul says, It'll be what God intends will be completed. The manifold wisdom of God will be on display. In in Peter, Peter talks about how God's work in Christ, it says, he, he describes it as something in which angels long to look. <clears throat> the church exists to bring glory to God. To those who are graced of God to see him for who he really is. To be those who enjoy the unveiled presence of the thrice holy sovereign of the universe. John says, one day we will be like him. Because we'll see him. As he is. We are Christ. That's what it means to be the church. We're Christ. We belong to the most important person that exists. He knows us. He loves us. 
We don't deserve it. It's a gift received by grace. We weren't smarter. We weren't better. We're just forgiven. And when Jesus comes back, all these people who say, well, I'm this and I'm that and I'm part of this and I'm part of that, all that's going to matter when Jesus comes back is he's going to say, he's either going to say, I know you or I don't know you. On that day, nothing else is going to matter. Don't matter, don't matter, you know, where you're from, don't matter where you're preferences are, don't matter how you voted in the ballot box, what's going to matter is when Jesus comes back, is he going to say, Henry, Teresa, Ray, I'm here for you. That's what's going to matter. And on that day, he will receive the glory that he is due. This is the church. The people of God, the forgiven, redeemed people of God. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a gift received by faith in him, the son, the risen one. The one who lived, who died, who rose again to live forevermore. And if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ, he will speak into your heart and you will know that he knows you and you know him. And from that moment on, you don't have to be afraid because you belong to him. If that's a decision that you need to make today, you need to do that. There is nothing, I can guarantee you, if you, you can have the praise of the world, you can have the biggest platform in the world, you can be adored by millions of people, but let me tell you something, there's nothing like being known and loved by Jesus Christ. And you can today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege of being the church. We don't deserve it. But we'll receive it by your sheer mercy and grace. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray, help us, God, to be the church. Help us, God, to be the first fruits of the new creations. Help us to put on display to the world what it means to belong to you. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would just speak to the hearts of everyone, God, who hears the sound of my voice. I pray that in their heart of hearts, you would just speak to them and that they would know that they belong to you. And Lord, maybe in their heart, they can't say that. Maybe they can't say that they know that they're yours. I pray that by faith this morning, they would reach out and reach up. By faith that you would enter in by your spirit and speak to their hearts, Lord, to turn them from their sins and to embrace you as their all. There is nothing, Lord, like knowing you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.